Hi, I'm John Barnes, producer, writer, musician, and arranger with Michael Jackson. Make sure you pay attention to the MJ cast. It's great. The following is a presentation from the MJ cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. I love you! <laughs> I love my fans. Just simply Michael Jackson. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm Elise Capron, and today it's just Jamin and myself here to present a very special episode. We're honored to have none other than John Barnes on the show today, a renowned musician, arranger, mixer, and producer who has worked with a wide range of the world's top musicians and entertainers, including, of course, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. John has been recording music since the early 70s and has worked with artists such as Marvin Gaye, The Miracles, Lionel Richie, Celine Dion, Diana Ross, and many more. He started working with the Jackson family in the 80s, playing synthesizer and handling arrangements on the Jackson's Victory album, and also worked with Janet and Jermaine during this time. John became deeply involved in Michael Jackson's solo career with Captain EO and The Bad Album. While Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedeen were working at Westlake, John, Matt Forger, and Bill Petrell were there at Havenhurst. John wore many hats, working as a musician, programmer, and developing ideas, including co-writing, We Are Here to Change the World. John continued working with Michael through many of his later albums following the 80s, including Dangerous, History, Blood on the Dance Floor. John has done musically revolutionary work with synth sound programming, particularly with the Synclavia, and has had many major impacts on the popular musical landscape as we know it. John, we couldn't be more honored to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. So thrilled to have you with us today. Can you tell us where you're Skyping in from? From uh, North Hollywood, California. Studio North Hollywood here. Welcome. Well, what's the weather like up there these days? Oh, probably 80s in the 80s. Not too bad. We're starting to feel a tiny bit of fall. I'm here from Studio San Diego, so we're kind of on the same spectrum. (laughs) I'm really excited about it not being quite as hot. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm out here in Studio Brisbane, Australia, where we're just coming out of winter, ready to hit the the hotter months of the year. <laughs> oh wow! Well, thank you again, John, for joining us. We're we're so um so honoured, and I and just I, I remember as well, Elise, you were telling me a little while back that you've actually had the pleasure of hearing John speak at a seminar. Yes, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Brad Sundberg's um, in the studio with Michael Jackson seminar this summer. It was in June this year in Los Angeles. I had the really wonderful, wonderful pleasure of seeing John speak for several days. I think you were there for two and a half of the days, along with Matt Forger and Bill Petrell. And, you know, John, it was just the whole weekend was so incredible and so moving. And you just really made a big impact in my life. I know in those in those days, hearing all your stories. So I was so excited when I was able to reach out to you and have you um, come on the show today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. 
John, one thing we always do is we love to go back in time and talk about where, you know, people's origins and how they got into the industry. Could you take us back and, and, and tell us about where you grew up and what sort of childhood you had? Well, I grew up and I started in an area called Watts, California. And then we lived in South Central Los Angeles. I come from a home where a lot of the people on my mother's side were tap dancers, musicians, and actors. My mother is in medicine, but she's a really fine pianist as well as her mother. So I was exposed in that way. My sister and I were tap dancers as very young children, which exposed us to a lot of different types of music than children normally would be hearing at that age. I began to play music at around six or seven as a woodwind player. I played clarinet and I played that all the way through university. I had a lot of different experiences, I guess, you know, along the way meeting really great people. When I look back on it, I just was extremely fortunate, partly due to the fact that my mother's relationship with our spiritual path, which is called the Baha'i Faith. A gentleman who moved to Australia named Russell Garcia was a very big influence on me as a younger person. He was a very well-known composer for television and film, and uh, he was an author uh, and a uh, big band arranger, just extremely gifted and special human being. So... I spent time around him not realizing that this was actually contributing to a really strong foundation in music. You know, through school, I studied music theory, composition, things like that. And as I got older, I switched to playing piano. So I guess I'm a product of being a self-taught pianist along with a formally educated music theorist and composer. So it produced some interesting results. I was fortunate to be asked to play in many situations here locally uh, with bands and performing artists. And when I look back, some of the places that I was involved with had large numbers of people who became successful over a period of time. that I was coming through. People like LTD with Jeffrey Osborne, Shalimar with Howard Hewitt, a group that was called Master's Children that Ralph Graham and uh, several guys came out of that went on to Earth, Wind and Fire, Rhythm Rebellion, that had you know several guys who went on and became part of Rufus and Shaka Khan, Lakeside, Parliament Funkadelic, Whispers, uh, just an unbelievable amount of people in our area out here. We did not have an industry for all of that artistry. There were no companies that really focused heavily on black music. I ended up leaving to go work and be a musical director with the Miracles, which was the second iteration of the Miracles with Billy Griffin. I went to Detroit to live, 
to be a musical director for them because I thought that I would end up having greater opportunities of moving forward in, you know, a recording profession. And as it would happen after about a year, Motown shut down its Detroit operation and everything moved back to Los Angeles, at which point I came back home and was allowed slowly into that system. And I was fortunate to record and work with many people as a result of that. When Motown came to California, they became aware of this abundance of talent that had been underutilized, let's just say. So their operation created tremendous training and work opportunities for all kinds of professionals, people who wanted to be engineers, people who wanted to be product managers, people who wanted to promote records, people who wanted to be in studios, who wanted to arrange, who wanted to play, who wanted to produce. All of these things started becoming available. So a lot of the other companies that had not really paid attention to that music in Los Angeles started realizing that Motown was succeeding out here and there was an untapped kind of a marketplace that had been underappreciated. And so that started opening the doors for many, many other companies to allow people like myself to have an opportunity you know, to have a career and be part of the profession. You were there just at this incredible, incredible moment, culturally, historically, um, you know, in the music industry, that's really amazing. And just to be surrounded with so much richness from an early age up through, you know, really breaking in into the music industry is amazing. John, I'm curious, as going back just a little bit to your early years, as you were growing up, and really beginning to get into your early career, were you a fan of the Jackson 5 and the Jacksons, or did that come a little later on? I liked the Jacksons. I liked everything that I heard. When I was younger, my plan for myself did not involve getting heavily involved in popular music. I I wanted to be a bit more of a classical slash avant-garde composer, and I wanted to have my own orchestra. People that I knew would say to me, you know what, you need to get in the record side. You can get your own money and then you can fund your orchestra so that you're not dependent on a bureaucracy to, you know, to tell you when and where you can do things. And if they choose to not fund you, then you're you're shut off. So, yes, I, I, I definitely appreciated the Jacksons. I had no idea that I would be working with them. Ironically, my first Jackson experience took place at Motown working with Jermaine. I started with Jermaine probably 1976 and did a lot of things with Jermaine over that time prior to meeting the other brothers and Michael and all of them. So for maybe four or five years easily. Wow, that's great. And did you, I mean, you bring up Jermaine and and the other brothers. I'm so curious, like having worked so long with them individually in the studio as well as Michael, are there there sort of similarities between the way the brothers all work in the studio? Probably the closest similarity would be the way Jermaine works and Michael. But none of them, in my opinion, have that extra measure of laser focus and commitment than Michael has. He just came here with something extra that 
can't be explained. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about when you got to work with all of them for the first time. So that would be on the Victory album, right? How did that sort of come to pass? Well, what actually started it was I ran into Marlon Jackson. I, we all played on a um, kind of a celebrity softball team out here. And so I used to play with them on occasions. And uh, I ran into Marlon one day and he asked me if I would be willing to help him with uh, some keyboard lessons and things like that so he could realize more of his music. So I said, sure, I'll help him. And then he told me that he wanted to do a solo project and he was taking voice lessons. And, you know, we were, I was helping him um, learn to play. And then he asked me to play some things that I had, some ideas. And and uh, we ended up taking one that I had gone in the studio and just recorded. And he wrote to it for an early song that Janet did called You Don't Stand Another Chance. And um, so he had the brother singing background on it. I think Michael even came in. And then when Michael heard it, he said, basically, Marlon, I know you didn't do this. Who did this? <laughs> and I want to meet that person. And so Michael ended up calling me directly as a result of hearing and experiencing that. That actually precedes a lot of thriller, even. Wow. Yeah, that is awesome. So you were working with Michael, really, even before that stratospheric status that came with Thriller. Yeah, because Michael wanted his own people. I think he had reached a point where he felt that he wasn't able to express his concept and views in music as powerfully as he wanted to. He felt that there was nothing wrong with him having had success with Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedeen and all of those guys, but he felt, okay, we did that. Now I want to go forward. And so he reached out to Bill Betrell and myself about joining him. I was the first one he reached out to because we actually had a business venture called Experiments in Sound, where I was developing new sounds and new ideas, new ways of doing things, technology, different relationships that we had as a business. I came in to do that. And after we worked with Bill on some of the early ideas that uh, I, I helped develop with Michael, early meaning like Buffalo Bill and Al Capone, and even at that time, Liberian Girl was one of those things that was originally going to be on the Victory album, and then uh, Michael held it for bad. Mm. So that that sat all that time. It was identical to what we did, what hit the record, with one addition, which was the African, uh, which was Leda Umbulu intro, uh, singing in the African dialect. But other than that, that's the record we did. So just to clear the air, we didn't go to Michael's house to do demos to hand over. We went to make the record. And there was a conflict and understanding as to whether Michael had the right to proceed forward without Quincy Jones or not. 
there was a misunderstanding, let's just say. You know, when that film was done, E.T., and there was a record soundtrack that was released, Quincy had had a relationship with Michael that was to cover three projects. Michael thought those three had been fulfilled. So that's the, the, the environment we believed we were coming into. It ended up proving out that E.T. was viewed as a soundtrack, not a record. So we lost our positioning on bad. And it's one of the reasons I don't like to talk too much is because it's very difficult to take a situation like that and be viewed as like a warm-up squad or a B team and all those kinds of things that people say. And even down to people saying things like, um, you know, Chris Carell did all of this stuff and we hadn't seen him for, he, he didn't come in until probably five years after he had been working. You know, I mean, I even had people at the seminar that Elise was speaking about, uh, ask me, was I sure that I actually did this stuff with and Clavier because <laughs> Chris Carell said he did it. And I'm sitting there going, not only am I sure, <laughs> I went to New England Digital. We designed the most expansive Synclavier that had ever been built. And that's what we worked with for some years doing all of these things. So uh, I guess I hope I'm not saying more than you're asking for. No, no, no we, we John, love that depth. <laughs> That's what we're all about. And John, you know, part of this too is that a big part of this, the reason this podcast exists is to really have a record of Michael Jackson's true legacy. And so getting your stories and your version of events is so important to that record. So we really appreciate your frankness um, through through all of this talk today. The proof is is in the music. I mean, we a friend of mine, Damien Shields, who I think you know as well. Yeah, um, yeah. He he's a close friend of ours, and he's writing a you know as you know he's writing a book at the moment, and he's done a lot of research around origins of particular songs and he's been to the u.s yes. copyright office and yeah he, he's yes. heard all the original stuff that was there before the quincy versions and his you know he tells us that 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 stuff at the copyright office those original versions of those tracks sound pretty much identical before quincy got his hands on them yes they did and like i said it was very very difficult for us because we put a lot into it to make a step forward from Thriller. That's a very difficult thing to do in the music industry. Very, very difficult. Because most people, if they hit something that succeeds at that level, they try to replicate it immediately. And we didn't. We went forward. For good or not, you know. And so that was very tough. Yeah, Damien has done a lot of work. I mean, he's uncovered a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much he's going to actually reveal, but in my conversations with him, he's one of the few people that I felt really comfortable speaking more uh, in depth with Yeah, because I viewed him as a very serious man in what he was researching and looking into. Because a lot of us have not really said that much for several yeah. reasons, but we have, not said, we have not said a lot of what we know. Part of it's generational and part of it is professional. Yeah. Well, John, let's 
let's go back a little bit before we keep moving forward. Um, everything you're saying is just phenomenal. And thank you again for sharing all this. Um, we'd love to hear a little bit about your first memory of actually meeting Michael. Can you tell us about that? Uh, he called me up on the phone and said, um, you know, I heard something that you worked on. I liked it. And he said, Marlon told me that you actually make your own sounds. And I said, yes, that's true. That's what I do as well as play them. Now that was uncommon out here. Most of the black guys were viewed as players and the white guys were viewed as programmers for their playing. I just felt that it didn't, I didn't have to necessarily be one of those people. So he asked me if I would come to a studio and he wanted to see how many sounds I could make. And I just said, well, you know, with all due respect, how much time do you have? I said, because what I'm capable of making, it's going to take some time to really do that. You know, because I, I do this for real, you know, so I'd be making things for quite some time. So he said, well, let's start. So we booked a session. We went to a studio called Soundcastle. That's the first time I saw him in person. And we started that day doing the song Buffalo Bill. Wow. And uh, I did, I don't know, I listened to what he wanted to accomplish. He was explaining to me his theatrical uh, thoughts around it, you know, all of that. And um, I was like, okay. So I did a classical introduction to the piece quickly. And then we did the track of Buffalo Bill. We got a major amount of it done in the first session, maybe like six hours. That was my first impression of me, Michael. That we got to work and we were able to be complimentary in our results. Like what he was expressing, I was able to hear that and translate that into sound quickly. Very, very cool. Um, would you be able to describe to us what the tra that track is like? You've mentioned it a couple of times now as a significant one that you worked on with Michael, and it's not that well known in the community. Could you describe it to us? Um, to me, I think it was in just one of Michael's exploratory, uh, explorative periods. The track was a dance song. It wasn't quite as fast as some of his other things, but it was definitely in the R&B dance speed. Michael Jackson music. I mean, that's pretty much all I can tell you. The only reason I mention it is because that's where step one started. I hadn't met him before that. I hadn't seen him before that. I'd never worked with him before that. It started right there. We started right into action. And after that, he said, you know what? I have this idea of um, starting a venture called Experiments in Sound. Would you be interested in something like that? And that was an opportunity to get a foot into all the major technology businesses and, you know, to have input into how things should be designed and how they could move forward. Sinclair gave me a lot of, of, of uh, I guess, uh, influence. Yeah, because we asked for things that they hadn't even thought about with an artist of that magnitude. It gave me that kind of power to be heard, 
so to speak, because they really, it really mattered to them. If you listen to interviews with Michael, um, you know, especially during the 90s, uh, when he's talking about working with people like Rodney and Teddy, he he says things like, I want sounds on the record that nobody's ever heard before. I'll send them out to, you know, junkyards to find equipment to bang around on to create patterns that have never been heard before. I, I mean, I would you suggest that this early work with you in, in the 80s is really Michael developing that passion for unique sound that hadn't been heard before. What it, yes. And what we did at that time is what he was asking them to do. We already did that. Yeah. I mean, I could go at some point in some of the things I'm documenting, I could go song for song and say, this is what this is. This is what this is. Here's where it came from. Here's how we developed it. I mentioned something at the seminar that Elise was at where I was saying that it's so interesting looking at some of these films. One guy was talking about a hand clap machine that he used on a song and there were no hand claps on there. We made those things out of these little miniature firecrackers called bang snaps, you know, and it's just so funny to me to hear all these people making claims and saying all this stuff. And, you know, Michael always pushed people to um, raise the bar. So whatever he was saying to Teddy and whatever he was saying to Rodney Jerkins, if you talk to Bill Betrell or myself and even early Matt Forger, Matt Forger really didn't stay with us that long. But even during that time, those were all the things that we did. I mean, pursuing all kinds. We became almost like a combination of a sound effects business combined with Foley, combined with music. Foley is exactly the word that was popping in my head as you were talking. (laughs) Thinking about this idea of sound creation as just being so creative and imaginative with your approach to that. That's really interesting. I know Synclavia is going to come up quite a bit. Could you just talk a little bit about what the Synclavia machine is? Prior to Synclavier, I started with a company that's actually out of Australia called Fairlight. And what it was, was the beginning of mainframe computer music-based systems, meaning that we now had the power of a computer, which was more than a synthesizer that could create, generate, store sounds and we could manipulate them in more detailed and powerful ways and then reproduce them on recordings. It was the early days of being able to synchronize these things together and do the early form of what people do now. I got to a point working with Michael where say around the time period of Billy the Kid and those records, I was doing Fairlight and a few other instruments at that time. And then Michael said, I don't see you making these new sounds and things like you were. What's wrong? I said, I've maxed out on what this can do. I need to go further. And this company isn't allowing me to go further. And he said, well, what will do that? And I said, Synclavier. Synclavier was an American 
mainframe computer-based system that was extremely powerful. In those days, if we wanted to take it out of the country, we had to get government clearance because some of the parts that were used to make it were parts that were also included in the space shuttle. Wow. Uh, it was uh, a very, very advanced, meaning it had its own specific computer language that you had to master. It didn't come with sounds where you can push a button and get a sound. You had to make sounds. You had to make samples. Everything had to be created in the, at the period that I came in. So its playback quality was just the highest playback quality available at that time. Even now, if I were to go to my Synclave and hit play and use certain things that are there, people just, it's just so distinctive and powerful. Only the elite could afford it at that time because it was incredibly expensive. Yeah. So working with Michael was my opportunity to have that type of power and technology available on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. And I can totally see why he, he was excited about that as well. So could you sum up for us, like what, what was it about the two of you as people that, that made it work? What made you two click as individual collaborators? I think... One of the things would be a spiritual foundation from the family side, going forward, a deep and wide range appreciation of music, you know, going from the classics to many international styles of music to all kinds of things. And then that desire to keep coming up with something new and different and interesting. You know, a lot of people don't have that. They have the ability to kind of progress on a certain kind of a path, but to just leave that path and do something completely different. It's not a lot of people that can really do that. And both of us had that inclination. And I think all of that mattered. I think he knew that I was up for the challenge over and over and over. Not that I always appreciated it, because sometimes it was a battle. But he knew that at the core. That we both had a very deep love and appreciation for the real spirit of music, how it showed up on this earth. Sounds like you guys were kindred spirits, which I think is so wonderful.
Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. Before we get into more of your work in the studio, we did just want to ask about the recording of We Are the World. Um, mm-hmm. Would love to hear a little bit about what it was like playing on that song and also if you stuck around for the vocal recordings. Okay. That's another one of those sensitive areas. <laughs> Michael came to me one day and said that we need to do this song and uh, I need you to help me do this. So he started singing um, some of the verse, but he primarily focused on the chorus. And I started playing what I felt that the chorus could sound like to what he was singing. Then we ran into a studio and we kind of just threw something together really quick. I just put a beat down and played it really, really fast without, you know, a lot of thinking about it. So there would be a reference. Yeah. And then um, Stevie Wonder, as I understood, it was originally scheduled to uh, write the bridge with them. He didn't show up. So actually, I kind of did that. And Michael sang it. And I was told at that time by Quincy Jones that I wasn't famous enough for my name to go on it. (laughs) Because of the nature of what it was, you know, a humanitarian project, something that really meant a lot to me in its effort, in its attempt to help humans. I didn't want to be in a fight over it, but it was very, very hurtful because I wasn't trying to do something. I actually did something. But that being said, we did a draft of it. We did the tracking and that was nice. For me, the vocal part of it was interesting but it was more of a celebrity kind of video kind of a project. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt that it, it didn't completely represent how all of it was done, but it made sense for what was being put out for the world to see everyone there doing what they would do. That just is not a way that a vocal would be cut. <laughs> Michael ended up autographing a 12-inch single of it for me, and it says to the man who played the song for the very first time, so that's We Are the World. <laughs> wow. Wow. Thank you for that for that story. It's it's starting to paint a picture of what it was like for you in the eighties and it's difficult hearing some of these things around like how hard you worked on some of these tracks and how little recognition there was from some of these big players that, that ended up taking the work um and, and using it. But we'll I guess we'll maybe get to a little bit of that later. We've covered some of the early work you did with the Jacksons and Michael on Victory. Talk to us about the, the transition from, so there was Victory, there was We Are The World. Talk to us about those early bad sessions. Did Michael come to you and say, we, I want to start working on material for something that's going to be my next project and it's going to be what I want to do? What was that vibe like? He did say on one level that what we were doing was working on developing you know, the music going forward that he wanted to really be into. But it wasn't like specifically like we're working on bad sessions. It was that we had a job. I was under contract with Michael to work every day. That was my my employment. You know, so whatever needed to happen. If I needed to do string orchestrations, I did that. 
if I needed to um, work with the Synclave and develop music with him, we did that. Whatever needed to be done, that's what I did. And we did that every day. So we were constantly developing music. And he would sit aside the things that he felt a stronger kinship with. And then we began to see that this could possibly be what was going to be on the next project. Another part of me had been done for Captain EO years before as well. And that ended up on bad. We would love to transition to talking a little bit about Captain EO as well, because of course, I'm a big EO fan. I love EO. Um, I was act John. I was actually just at Disney yesterday, and I still shed a little tear that Captain EO <laughs> is no longer at that theater. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on that front, um, you were so involved with Captain EO, and it was such a huge project. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that? Um, how much you knew about the project and what it was like? How long you were working on it, for example? I was in this relationship with Michael. I mean, we were developing songs, we were doing all of this stuff. So it was a natural vehicle for us to keep doing what we had been doing and translate it to a real project. So I guess Michael spoke to me about what Captain Eel was going to be like and what we were going to be looking to do. We just moved into it. We went into a studio. We were going to work on some pieces of music during that exact same time. The uh, Pepsi commercial was being shot for um, the victory tour. And that happened to be the one where Michael's hair caught on fire. We had the studio booked. And we were there every day, but Michael was in the hospital. After a couple of days or so, I just felt that the studio shouldn't be charging and people shouldn't be eating a free lunch, so to speak, with Michael not there and us not doing anything. So I started creating a, a piece of music and that piece of music ended up being We Are Here to Change the World um, wow. while he was in the hospital. And when he came back from the hospital to visit in the studio, he said, you know what? We need to do something very, very different. You know, what can we do? And one of the guys said, well, he's been kind of doing something that's a little different. And he said, let's hear it. And we hit play and he jumped up and started dancing and stuff. And that was that. We began working on it as the, the big dance piece. Or like the heart of Captain EO. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, I think it captures that moment where people stand up in their courage, you know, mm -hmm. where you make that decision that, yes, we're here to make a real difference. And we're going to do that starting right now. That's what I like about it. Absolutely. It's it's such an empowering and empowered um, and really just positive uh, song. And I just, I love that you originated the whole thing. Well, I'm, I'm always thankful when something can come through that connects and has value because most music people are doing music all the time. 
but it's not everything that carries that specialness. So we're always thankful when that happens. Captain EO represents a, a real synergy between you know creative geniuses and and um, technology. We were talking about technology earlier. I can only imagine what it was like when it had come out, and you've got like George Lucas. Uh, Michael, Francis Ford Coppola, it's 3D, it's Star Wars, it's Michael, it's, <laughs> it's Disney. It, it would have been just an incredible spectacle for people at that time. It was, it was a very interesting thing. One of the things that I observed was that George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, and Steven Spielberg had a brotherhood. And I believe it's like a little genius group that helps each other critique their projects and keep them at a very high level, you know, to get feedback from people who really know what they're speaking about. So that kind of input came into that project. I mean, shooting with a 3D camera and, and making it at that level, that 3D quality was very, very high quality for 3D that in comparison to other 3D things that I've seen since even. It was a very, very interesting thing, is all I can say. It was just a major departure from how any of us had known, say, short films slash music videos slash, you know, production pieces like Fred Astaire goes to space kind of thing, you know. <laughs> That's uh, great. It was just a big departure, you know. I mean, that's at that level of uh, singing in the rain and all those kinds of films were in their day. That's really, really doing something. Absolutely. So that was quite an experience. Yeah. I, just to say one more thing about Captain EO, can you explain, John, also just the range of the other stuff you were doing for Captain EO. I mean, you were really making all of the sounds in that film as well. That was part of the Synclavia and Foley stuff, right? Yeah, well, the Synclavia was part of it. When I started, we didn't have the Synclavia yet. So I was doing it with other equipment, and we explored all kinds of avenues, you know, to get those things done. It was a real kind of research yet application process all in one. Figuring out what to do, then figuring out how to do, and delivering all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And it was really a, quite an experience. Yes, one that certainly paid off in terms of um, creating a, a, a timeless art piece. I just wish we could uh, see. I want, I've never seen it in a Disney park. What, what, what were your... Um, do you have recollections of seeing it in a Disney park? Were you there? Did you ever see it with Michael? I didn't see it with Michael. I didn't go with Michael because when it was actually coming out, I believe they were out on tour. He came to a premiere, uh, but I didn't go to that particular one. Yeah. But I saw it a few times and I thought it was really, really special. I like the fact that they built a venue to, to share it with people. Yeah. That took a lot of things into consideration, you know, the seats being able to move and create the, um, the overall experience, the sound, playback, everything, you know, was optimized for that one thing, which people don't do anymore, but 
I thought it was great. It definitely held up for a long time. Yeah. They brought it back to Disneyland um, after Michael's passing in 2009, and I went to see it again at that point. Uh, I thought it still looked fantastic. Yes. You know, when things are done well, you know, they, they, they just hold up for what they are. If, if a person was trying to compare it to, say, something that someone did today, you know, you may look at that and say, mm, you know, I don't know. But like if I look at a film, say like something like Godfather, I don't look at Godfather and say, mm, I don't like it so much because it didn't capture that energy that Terminator captured. I look at it and go, wow, that is a great film for what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Captain EO captured that for what it was and is. I don't know that anything really rivals it as an artist doing a project with, you know, as a performer, as a, you know, an actor and all of those things. They had some very strong elements in it. Yeah. Agreed. And the message too, the message, man. Mm -hmm. Let's keep moving chronologically. I want to, you know, we were talking earlier about bad. So we've, we've talked about Captain EO and, um, I want to know about the the vibe in in when you were working with Michael around prepping those songs for the next album. Was Thriller and its success looming over everything? There's this narrative that gets portrayed, I guess, by the media that Michael was crippled by Thriller's success and blah, blah, blah. Was that a thing? Mm -mm. No. A lot of people are oftentimes challenged to follow up that type of success. Because they're afraid that if they don't match those numbers, people will see them as failing. Uh, I remember, I think Bad had reached something like 30 million sales. And we heard some company people saying they were wondering if Michael was kind of losing it. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, are you guys serious? Here is a man who has done three solo albums. And these three soul albums, collectively, have sold over 80 million records, and you're wondering if somebody's losing it? Mm. But that's the kind of pressure that gets put on people, and I think Michael just refused to give in to that kind of pressure. And one of the ways that you demonstrate refusal is by doing your work every day, as you should. If you're always making progress, you're always moving forward. You don't lose that much of an edge. You, you see people all the time. They maybe win a Grammy or they have a big record. And now they're at all the parties. They're all over the TV. They're doing all these other activities. But that thing of working on what got you there over and over and over, sometimes that drifts away. Mm. I'll just say it that way. They don't focus on it as heavily. Where Michael focused on those things heavily. Always being creative, always pushing it, looking at different ways to see clothing, different ways to see dance, different ways to sing, and uh, what he wanted to write about, all these kinds of things. Those were real priorities and took up a lot of his energy. So he didn't let it fall off that much. And Sounds so like it's almost like being an Olympic athlete and having to just, you have to be on top of your game in all regards all the time. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And in many cases, it might even be a little closer to something like, say, basketball or, or some, a sport like that, where now that everybody's seen what you've done this year, they're able to look at film and figure out a way to kind of try to stop you. And so you need to elevate your game so you have something new that you're bringing the next year so you can keep being effective. You, who were really at the center of this team in such a remarkable way, you were there in the studio every to every day, always working and, and creating and being imaginative and seeing what you could push forward. And that that was really this, you know, you were this um, this origin team, I think. Um, I love that. With that in mind and and kind of thinking about, you know, your team in this way. And again, I think correcting the public perception of what this team really was, um, which I also think is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about what those Havenhurst sessions were like with Bill Patrell and also I know in the the early part, Matt Forger? Basically, they were pretty simple. I would get with Michael. We would look at what we were going to do or what we wanted to accomplish. If he didn't have anything that he was wanting to accomplish at that time, or if he wasn't going to be around for a few days or whatever that was, then I would plan an agenda. We would either go out and do field recordings that were going to be used for, you know, the Foley slash sound effects stuff, or I would start working on taking what we had done and figuring out ways to combine that with other instrument sounds and create things. And, then if I was so inspired, I'd maybe create a piece of music. And so it kind of was like a, a relay race in that that part of it would go into action. Then we'd have a piece of music. Then that would go over to Bill and Bill would send it back and we'd hear what he did. And then that would become exciting. And then that would trigger more energy. And we just kind of became um, inspirations to one another by bringing our gifts to, the, to bear. And that they were really that straightforward and simple. Three guys in a in a small studio just doing that. Yeah. Not making it a big deal. It wasn't videotaping every day. It wasn't having lots of people in and out. It was very focused and, you know, streamlined. Yeah. So that's what we did. Um, can you talk to us about um Michael's approach in particular to creating and songwriting? and how he approached it with you. What was his process of coming up with a new song? Many times to me, if he heard something in his head, the point that I would come in would be uh, when he had a semblance of a melody that he would start singing, and then I would start harmonizing that melody immediately. Uh, And then once we had a solid piece of music like that, then I would take that and go in the other room and start organizing it into a real recording, something we could record that he could then sing to and we could then move forward with. And it was pretty much like that every time. Yeah. Sometimes he'd have a baseline idea or he sang some of his vocal drum parts to give an idea of the energy that he wanted in it. Sometimes it would go like that. 
or he'd say something like, you know, this feel like this. I want to write something with that kind of feel, which at that point I'd start looking through what we had and see if there was a way that I could start a process of creating that kind of a feel that then would maybe inspire him to go and come back with something with it. The other thing was that many, many of the songs that we did were recorded top to bottom four to five times complete. They weren't just done once. There was a lot that went into them. And that has to do with making sure that when a decision is made to say, this is the speed that I want, this is the key that it sounds best in, this is the instrumentation that I like versus that instrumentation, things like that. We explored scientifically once we had a creative piece to make sure that we weren't saying, I like that because that's the only thing we did. We liked that because we explored it and realized that's the best path for it to go down. Yeah. John, would those would those different versions work as kind of an evolution towards the final, absolute final product? Or was each version kind of trying out something different that might end up, you know, uh, you know, getting kind of getting all mixed up together. I mean, how exactly did that process work for you guys? I would have to say that it was just seeing what was possible. You know, it's, it's, it's stretching the boundaries. I, it's a tough thing to do because, uh, you know, when you're working, there's a feeling that I know what I'm doing. I'm a professional and I know how to do it. But from a scientific standpoint, you want to make sure that you've explored enough to arrive at that decision and to be confident in that decision. And uh, I hadn't worked with anyone that had, who stretched it as far as Michael did Yeah. when it came to that. Sometimes I thought it got, it, it got pushed a little too far. Other times I felt that it was good that it got pushed far. Because good things came out of some of the different versions. But God, I remember doing um, Al Capone a couple of times. And then Al Capone ended up morphing into what became Smooth Criminal. So sometimes it would happen like that as well. Probably if I had to pinpoint the song that has excited me the most since Michael's passing that I've heard come out officially... I, I would say it would be Al Capone, to be honest, on the Bad 25 album. When I heard that for the first time, I was sort of shocked that, A, it had never come out before. And I was also really shocked that they decided not to use it as some kind of a single. Because they, I think they, it was really weird, the Bad 25 album. They, they re-released uh, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, I think, as a promo single. And I'm like, you guys are sitting on this incredible jam of Al Capone. This this is amazing. <laughs> um, that was the highlight for me of the, that album. That is one of the challenges that I live with as well, which is that I would not want to go in and look at music that was done when Teddy Riley was there and feel like I needed to reinterpret what he did. Mm. I'd like to be able to hear what his intention was what they were really going for. 
And when it comes to that vault, there have been so many things that people just had no idea of how Michael felt or what the point of them were or where they left off, that there may be other tapes that go with them that they don't know. You know, it's so much that stays obscure because some of us who really know that literature have not been asked to participate in those ways. Yeah, and that's the most devastating side of this to me is, you know, the key people that should be there and and elevated um, to positions of authority over his over the art that's left behind aren't given the respect by by his estate. A good example of that, I think, is the song "She Was Loving Me" by Corey Rooney. I think he wrote and produced that with Michael in the late '90s. When that came out on the Escape album, it came out in a really flat mono sounding way that wasn't mixed uh, Corey wasn't even asked to mix his own song for that record and he was disappointed in the sound uh, and I it just beyond me it's absolutely beyond me how the state executors can't reach out to guys like you John and say you know we we need your absolute participation in in bringing this to a level of well, I don't know if I'd use the word completion but like presented in a really authentic way, I should say, that Michael would have been proud of. The other thing I would think, if I was being an executive of the estate or even a musicologist slash archivist, I would have wanted to interview everyone that was involved in the creation of these things. What do you remember about this? What's special about this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, those kinds of things. I'd want to have the real, while everybody is still here with us. Yeah. I'd want to have that documented. And I'd want to know, what's this over here? You know, we put this up, but we didn't really understand it. Oh, well, you don't understand that because the synclavier needed to be attached. And we never really recorded all the synclavier parts to that. You know, for example, I mean, you know, somebody's going to go through and use um, a measuring stick that is just not accurate, and it's going to be determined by people who had nothing to do with Michael at that time. I, I, I find that challenging for me as a, as a being. What do you think about it when they get, when they release these old sort of demos or songs, but what they do first is get people like Timberland and people that are totally disconnected, never worked with Michael, and they say, we want you to remix this and we're going to put it out as a song. What do you think of when they do that? I think that it's backwards. I think they should make certain that those guys are at the bare minimum hearing what was intended to be done in the first place, and then they might be viewed as remixers to come in and give their interpretation once there is an interpretation my issue is for them to be giving a quote-unquote first interpretation with no uh intimate knowledge it's it's difficult for me Mm, yeah it's just difficult for me but you know that's what happens you know the people involved in this state have a different view i just would love to see his contributions documented in a way that they could be used in a much more scholarly, 
uh, way, you know, in universities and people be able to study music and what makes these things happen and know what people have to say and what the input was and all these kinds of things. To me, he deserves that. Yeah. He, he deserves that. No, I couldn't agree more. And that's why Q and, and Elise and I feel so much, we said we feel a great sense of urgency to try and capture these stories and keep them and document them and, and and when I say we feel really honored to speak with you, it's not an exaggeration. I feel like we're talking to somebody who created history here. We we really are. Like it, Michael was an incredible musician, but I really feel like he wouldn't have been able to, you know, develop to the heights that he did without being able to work with people such as yourself who could, you know, elevate him. So thank you again. Well, and we come from a see these days, people can take a laptop, some uh, Bluetooth speakers, a small portable keyboard, and use audio programs that give them all kinds of sounds and all kinds of beats and hits and all kinds of things and put something together sitting in a park. At the time that we were working, none of that was possible. So you needed people who not only had complementary talents, but that had complementary personalities that were really willing to work together as a team. And that's part of what people lose sight of when they bring in others to translate this music. They don't understand why people did what they did and what teamwork was all about. And they'll never understand it because they're not living in that world. That world isn't the case anymore. You have people now who have 5,000 virtual friends on Facebook. That's their <laughs> community, you know? And, and the music community was a little different than that. Yeah. You see people that a million people like something that they put up on YouTube. But YouTube is different than radio. Radio had to stop you in your tracks and make you want to go somewhere and buy it. Mm. YouTube, you decide I'm going to go look at YouTube. Let me see what's out here now. Let me see what so-and-so is doing. You know, it's a different, it's a different relationship altogether. So with Michael Jackson doing music, he was dealing with the sensibilities and the realities of that time. And so people who came along that didn't have to necessarily deal with it in those ways don't understand. John, going from what you're saying to really talking about organic song creation, we'd love to hear a little bit about Michael's beatboxing. Um, of course, he's well known for vocally singing the compositions that he would be hearing in his head. <laughs> and so we'd like to hear a little bit about how that process worked um, from your perspective and in terms of getting what Michael was hearing in his head down on tape. I think it, there's a combination of elements. Number one, sometimes he was very, very clear about say, a bass line that he wanted or something like that or a rhythm part that he wanted. Other times, he would recognize that what he was hearing come back through another person would work for what he was doing. So it wasn't always him knowing everything, but his, his energy created a field 
in which those elements could be attracted in, whether they came from me or someone else or him. That's part of it. The beatboxing was not something that was a big part of what we did with Michael. It was a big part of what he did prior to us being there because he didn't have the level of equipment and the level of personnel that we all represented. So when he wanted to put something down, he needed to sing the beat. So he had something to sing to and all of that. That that went away. He didn't have to do that, and not during that time period. He's very capable of doing it, but it wasn't required. And in terms of Michael's creative process, we have to ask, did you get any of his infamous early morning phone calls? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I did. I didn't get a lot of them because... Because <laughs> you were uh, sleeping. One of the things that we shared was being kind of quick-witted, jokester, prankster-type people. Both of us are that. So I remember one time he called me really early in the morning, and I said, hello. He said, hey, John, it's Michael. I was like, Michael who? Michael Jackson. And I slammed the phone down. I said, I don't know any Michael Jackson this time of morning. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) For a short period of time, I had a beeper. I think I got beeped. Four or five times before I went even a mile after leaving. (laughs) So I threw that thing away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, because, you know, at that time, I mean, where could he go? I mean, everywhere he went, it just became this huge thing. You know, so a lot of his life went into what we were all doing. That's where he could be free. So we had very interesting relationships because of that. Because we spent a lot of really significant time with him. It was very different than people who worked, say, on a project with him. They met in a studio and then they went their separate ways. I mean, I walk out of the studio, I could go upstairs and that was his bedroom. You know, so sometimes we'd write in there because he had a piano in there other times. You know, we would do different things, but it was very safe environment with which to be in. Yeah. John, during the bad sessions, Michael was churning out some some tracks that didn't make it onto the album, obviously. I think, I thought, oh, geez, if I had to guess, uh, the bad album probably would be the one with the most number of songs that didn't make it that, that, that are still there, still exist. Songs like I'm So Blue, Price of Fame... Do you recall any particular songs that didn't make it onto the Bad Album that Michael continued to be passionate about and working in the 90s on? I don't know about working into the 90s on. I don't know about that, but I know that there were a few that he had strong feelings about. But then again, that's where the philosophical and artistic differences showed up Mm. between him and Quincy Jones. Yeah. I mean, Michael was was really, I mean, ready to emerge. And he just kind of felt that a lot of his kind of ideas weren't that quickly received. Hmm. He always had to fight for them. 
because I will say Man on the Mirror of the Bad Album that came through Saida Gary, which came through the Quincy Path, that was a major contribution to that record. Yeah. But the Stevie Wonder song and some things like that, I I believe there might have been stronger pieces available. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. That I know of for sure. Um, Price of Fame became a Pepsi commercial at one point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, yeah, there was one called "Do You Know Where Your Children Are?" That was very interesting. Uh, one called "Turning Me Off" that was really interesting. There's one that I know. Looking back on, he said to me that we should have done it. It was a song we did together called "Make or Break." Hmm. You know, and there are a lot of others, but it's hard to say when you're doing a project like that. I don't care what you do. There's always going to be something that could have been there. That yeah. Wasn't. <laughs> that didn't. Yeah. And in the end, it, it just is, you, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. Yeah. Especially at that time, because you're dealing with the early days of CD, but still a form of vinyl. You know, and there were limits as to how much music could go on these projects. It was later on that people were doing 16 to 20 tracks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But there was just limits. I have um, one final question about The Bad Era, and it's about a song that we've... We, one, one of the people that have come on our show before to talk to us, an author, Joe Vogel, he, he said he'd um, heard this song in, in the preparations for Bad 25 called Crack Kills. He was shocked it didn't come out on the album. He said it was that good. Do you Was that a song you worked on as well? I don't remember it. I may have worked on it, and then I never heard the melody or the lyric. But without hearing it, I, wouldn't be, I, I couldn't say for sure. I don't remember it as that title. Yeah. I think it was meant to be a collaboration with Run DMC. That could be. But there were a couple of proposed collaborations, but... They didn't really work out for the bad record. Yeah.
Hi, this is Michael Prince, studio engineer and producer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Can you tell us about what your involvement was like in the sessions leading up to Dangerous? I didn't know what we were doing again. I just came in and worked, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> and before the project was completed, I had an obligation to go to England, and I left uh, to go overseas. I did everything that I could do, and then I left. So that one I know less about. I mean, I think the takeaway here, you know, from a lot of this conversation too, which, you know, I hope is, is will come through to listeners as well, is that, you know, it just was this stream of creation moving forward. And however these ideas were applied was something you maybe would not really see until later on. I'll, I'll try to say it in a way that makes it uh, translate maybe a little better. Not everything that a person writes is great. And what successful writers want to learn is the formula of what is their hit ratio? How many pieces of music do you need to average writing before something great comes through? In the history of music, Cole Porter and Lionel Richie have had uh, the highest hit ratio per songs written. Uh, they average somewhere between one out of every 10 or every 10 and a half that are successful. For other people, they have to do more work for something great to come through. So when you hear an artist like, say, Michael Jackson, and we probably worked on 50, 60 songs for that, for what became bad, and that's not even talking about doing them the number of times that I told you that we did. Yeah. Wow. It's the work that it takes for greatness to come through. It just is what's required. Lots of them aren't good enough. That's why I'm not a big fan of undereducated people going into a vault. Mm -hmm. Because not everything was meant to be out. You know, I think it matters that the artists have some say so over this represents my creativity and what I do. And this one didn't quite make it. So I'd rather not have a diminished version of what I do out before the public. Yeah. As an example, you know, so I just think that some of those considerations have been overlooked a bit. Absolutely. And at the very least, if they are going to come out, then present them as what they are, as demos. Like some of those, uh, I've got the, um, uh, I think it's, I can't remember what anniversary edition it is of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, but that's, oh, yeah. that's great. 40th. Uh, I think it is the 40th. And that's got multiple discs of like alternate takes and demos and they are presented yeah. as they are. They are, you know, they weren't finished things that made it onto the album. Whereas the Michael Jackson estate, they go get some demo that Michael recorded in one day and probably never thought of again and then get a new hot producer to remix it and say it's a completed Michael Jackson song. It's a different ta approach. Because it's financially motivated. It's not artistically motivated. Mm. It, I believe. I believe that they're just looking for 
ways to create the revenue streams as opposed to realizing that, you know, revenue streams come from maintaining an appreciation for someone's artistry. An example of that would be if you went into a store and you wanted to buy a DVD and you wanted to buy a DVD of, let me see, Mickey Mouse or any old Disney products like that. Those things aren't discounted. They're not marked down because they never lose their value Mm. because of how they're respected. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what matters to me when it comes to Michael, that the respect level be there, that, you know, something wasn't really meant to be the full on record and all of that. I put 20 of them together and give it to the fans. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to keep that relationship that took years to build. I want to keep that alive and, and integrous. That's what would matter to me. Because, you know, and, and again, like if, you, if, if a person could buy a product, let's say, and with that product that they're buying, they could have interviews of people that were involved uh, in making that product. What was it like and all of that. For the fan base, that would be incredible for them. Those are things people really want to know. Yeah. And um, I think the estate has lost sight of that, trying to just monetize everything as opposed to just thinking about it a little bit differently. I'll just say that. Agreed. It's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, a lot of us that have been fans when Michael was alive, you know, I was I became a fan in 2001 and it's um it is a difficult scenario to be in today because you've got an estate that really behaves in a way that's unacceptable. I mean, all you have to do is look at the album that came out in 2010 with the with the fake tracks on it with the fake vocals. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You got Michael's family, collaborators, fans pleading with these guys, don't release this. It's fraudulent. We're telling you. And they went ahead and did it. And I just you got a fan community that's divided now. Many of us won't support them. It's it's fractured and it's negative and <laughs> and it's unfortunate, it's undeserved. You know, your job as an estate is to protect the legacy and the wishes and the desires of the person that created all this. It's almost like it's hell bent on going the other way. I know. That's crazy. <sighs> I don't get it. But anyway, <laughs> we we didn't get here to <laughs> we didn't want to just that's, that's very true. That's very true. Sorry for getting sidetracked. No, that's my, that's, I do that too. No, so. it's, it's an important point. <laughs> and it's one uh, we're very passionate about. So I, we love that, that we're of the same mind on all this. Oh, absolutely. You know, I shared one story uh, when you were asking earlier about what was it like meeting Michael. To me, I've never been a, uh, you know, like a, a person who chased stars or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So to me, he was a person. But there were moments that I shared with him that were really unique. And one of those was where my younger brother was involved with some people who had a child who was very, very ill. And 
they had given this child no hope. I mean, the doctors could not figure out how to save this child's life. And my brother contacted me and said that this baby loved Michael Jackson. Whenever Michael Jackson would come on, he would just perk up. So I just thought my brother was going to say, do you think Michael could come down here and meet this kid before he passes? But no, that's not what he asked. He just asked if I could maybe get Michael to autograph an album for him. And I asked him if he would do it, and he did that. And do you know, 20-something years later, I met that kid. He lived. You never know what things like that can mean to a human being. You know, he meant so much to so many people. I mean, in the real world sense. Not just because he made records, but because of so many things that were done. That's what hurts me when I see the estate acting in that way, because I feel that part of the estate value is the music. The other part is carrying forward who the human being was. And as a human being, I know he would never act like this. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So heading into like the 90s, so Beyond Dangerous, History, Blood on the Dance Floor and Invincible, during the that time period, were you still working with Michael as heavily as you were in the 80s or was he calling on you? No. No? No. Uh-uh. He had moved out to the ranch and he was working with other guys, you know, and I was okay with that because I was doing other stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. So occasionally I'd go out and visit or, you know, say things and... You know, I work with Jermaine a lot, but, you know, Michael was creating at that time a bit of a competitive field uh, between Brian Loren and Brad Buxer. And, you know, I guess one of the times I went, all, everybody was there. And I just felt this level of competition that I don't participate in. Mm. That's one thing I've never believed in when it comes to music. I feel like, just like with the relationship, that you want to be in the place where what you have to offer is what people want. And if they want something else, let them have that, because I can't do that or be that. You know, so I didn't participate during those times. So uh, that's interesting, because I've actually interviewed Brian Loren, and um, it was a very interesting discussion, um, <laughs> to say the least. But um, he, mm-hmm. there were there were moments in the discussion where he he really placed a lot of blame on other people uh, for how things went down. And I don't really want to get into the specifics of it. But no, um, yeah, that's Brian. Yeah, that's. But do you, are you saying that that Michael sort of willingly created an environment where people were working? in silos like that's how steve jobs worked at apple you know he'd create different teams working on the that's same how Barry thing Gordy worked. Yeah. he learned it at motown yeah yeah you have people competing to give you the best product yeah yeah well brian brian was a talented person that should have felt i'm sorry i hate to say what should have in my experience i would have felt that he would have looked at himself as very fortunate to have been in that situation. He was not really one of the kind of guys that one might think of when you think about Michael. 
I'll just say, if you talk to people that work with Michael and you say, well, what do you think about this particular person? You know, they might look at it and say, uh, you know, I'm not so sure. Yeah. I mean, it was the same way with uh, L.A. and Babyface, you know, and with uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I mean, they were very, very successful. But, you know, they're successful at something that was different than what Michael did. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Just because you're successful doesn't mean you can work with just anyone. Yeah. Well, and Michael was, so, was savvy enough to, I mean, just be so great at creating, especially, I mean, when you were there at, at Havenhurst, to be creating this team who he could just trust in and go to and work with in this really deep way. And then you also, as you mentioned, it was really about work and understanding how to this group along the way too. I mean, that's where that amazing creation happens. Uh, as it went into the nineties, you started seeing a different kind of a creative person, someone who was singular in what they did. Now we're all able to be singular, but we came up in a music community, whether it's an orchestra, a band or whatever, People, in order to realize music, had to work with other people. So if you couldn't be a person that uh, others were inspired by and wanted to work with and wanted to be around, then you just were not part of it. When people could lock themselves up in a room and come out with something as a product, they didn't have that same type of personality anymore. You know, so Brian and several other guys just kind of represented a a different point of view about how things got done. Yeah. Michael being the uh he and I are the same generation and Bill, we're all the same generation. So as such, there were some foundational things that we were all in agreement with on the ground floor. You know, I didn't get disturbed if if somebody could do something that we needed, I'd have a problem with calling that person up and ask them to come do that. A lot of these guys were very territorial. It was either you were doing their thing or, you know, they were. Yeah. And I was used to being around extremely gifted people at every seat all the time. You know, <laughs> So that's where the competitive side did not appeal to me. Yeah. That's where I became less willing to be around. But I, I mean, I've heard interesting this story as well, and I'm hoping you might be able to correct it um, if it's in, if it's not true. But I've heard um, that you were involved in sort of a little team scenario thing in the 2000s, where Michael had you working on a charity single. See, I remember in in the mid 2000s after the trial, and Michael moved to Bahrain. He that was a really exciting time for fans, actually, because there was those incredible uh, images that came out of, of Michael in the studio, 2C studio. And we were so excited. We were like, Michael is back in the studio doing his thing. This is awesome. Yeah. I, I wonder what's going to come. And then we were, that was, yeah. there was so much mystery around that for so long. I just want to lay the misconception out if it's, if it's not true, that there are two teams, two separate teams, both working independently on charity singles. And Michael was was working both teams. One was working out of Bahrain. Is that is that any truth in that? Well, let me just say the the single that was being worked on in relationship to Bahrain actually started during his trial. 
Mm. I was going out to his ranch during the trial. And when the trial would let out in the evening, we would work at night out at Neverland. 2004. And that went on into 2005. 2006, Michael headed over to Bahrain as far as to stay. And there was a business put together for uh, that single and other things as well. Yeah. And that song was one that had been written by David Foster and Michael Jackson. Yeah. I worked on several pieces of music, going from the United States to Bahrain, from Bahrain to England to do the orchestrations and all this stuff, as well as helping to develop music for potentially a project going forward. That's why Bill Trail went over as well. Yeah. So we were kind of getting all of us back together. Because I think Michael had figured out at that point that you need to be around the kind of people who can really deliver, but also are not uh, close-minded to allowing space for others to contribute when needed. Mm. And a lot of the other guys weren't those type of people. They were like, we do what we do. We don't need anybody else in here. Yeah, that's what makes it L.A. and Babyface, or that's what makes it Jimmy Jam and Jerry Lewis, or that's what makes it Rodney Jerkins. Where in our case, we were looking to make a Michael product, hmm. and whatever it takes to make that, that was our mentality. I mean, I guess that's one of the, the criticisms that come about with his later work, with things like on Invincible, with all of those Rodney Jerkins tracks. They a lot of them feel yeah. very much like this is a Rodney thing featuring Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, because, because here's the difference. <clears throat> in the time period that I came up in, whether you talk about working in the clubs or working on records, pianists had to be an accompanist or they didn't need you there. You had to be able to play in a supportive way for any number of different types of artists. Yeah. Okay. And an arranger had to be able to do that as well. In the time period of Rodney Jerkins, he was selling the Rodney Jerkins quote unquote brand. And Michael happened to be the recipient of that brand. But really he was selling that, that this is what I do. And <clears throat> that's a different business. It's just really a different business. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's Timberland or all those guys have a very, uh, they have a distinctive kind of a personality. Some have more range than others, but it's a very distinctive kind of personality that you hear. When we came up, you didn't do that. You you did music for the artist. So I could leave Michael Jackson and go work with Kenny Loggins and be okay. Yeah. Because we could do that. You know, that was our training. That's what made it different. But as things went into the 90s and going further, we just saw a lot more specialized sound people trying to find something that worked in the marketplace and get as much mileage out of it as they could. Yeah. And that really defines the entire evolution to the YouTube, Spotify <laughs> culture, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a commodity. Yeah, and people like Bill and myself would not be inclined to participate in a project that was being done that way. Because... If I got the inspiration, oh, my God, you know what? This guitar player would be great. And what if we do this and change the background vocals like this? 
our relationship with Michael is we just put another tape up and just go do it. We didn't say, should we, should we not? We would always pursue. And then to be in an environment with somebody who's feeling like, well, who does this person think they are to be coming in and changing what I do or, you know, turning into a political issue? You wouldn't even want to be around that. I wouldn't. Um, so just to finalize, um, just that, I just need a little bit of clarity on that that song that you that song you were working on in Bahrain, the David Foster song. Would you mind if I just um, asked a couple of questions? Well, a, a Michael and David Foster song. Oh, sorry, sorry, a Michael and David Foster song. Yeah, so they co-wrote sure it. Being, yes. Yep. What was it? Was it called? Uh, what was the title of the song? It was called "I Have This Dream." But again, that's something that hopefully we'll be able to see that see the light of day. Cool. I just say that. Yeah. One day. You know, it's <laughs> it's um a project where many artists came and sang with him on it and it was meant to be a contributor to uh, uh Katrina victims. Yes. And it ran into some speed bumps, we'll just say. And it just was unbelievable to me to see what can come along with trying to help people. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, a similar thing happened to him years earlier with the song What More Can I Give, where Sony went to extreme lengths to block that song coming out. Yeah. It's unfathomable, really. The guy put so much heart into wanting to help people and corporations just block it. There's There's a lot of things involved in that. But it is unfortunate because maybe in today's world, it would have been a little bit easier. But at that time, I mean, there was so much money being generated and being made that they weren't probably weren't inclined to want to see it given away. Yeah. So, John, um, can you tell us one of your favorite in-studio memories of Michael? Um, (laughs) that's very difficult to say because most of mine are kind of comedic and I wouldn't want to embarrass anyone, (laughs) but (laughs) they are unbelievably comedic. (laughs) Let's see. In the non-musical area, in the musical area, I would probably have to say, um, Librarian girl is one of them because everything happened so it, it was almost like stream of conscience for everyone, all, all three of us. And it happened so fast that we all knew that something extraordinary had happened. On the musical side, that's one of them. But on another side, <laughs> We were in a studio and um, some people came for a meeting. And I guess they were thinking, okay, that this meeting, let's say it's supposed to happen at five o'clock. So they get there for five and Michael says to him, you know, could you go sit out there for a little bit and uh, just wait for me. And so they, you know, are putting on their, best Michael Jackson personality and they go sit out there. And so I'm sitting there <laughs> and he pushes up a fader 
on the recording console. <laughs> and it's to an open mic that's out there in that room. <laughs> and you hear these people say stuff like, who does he think he is? We're here and we're supposed to have this meeting. Blah, 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 blah. And they're just going on and on and on and just talking. And I'm looking and going, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so then he invites them in. And they go, Michael, <laughs> how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And they're talking. They have this meeting. And just when they're leaving, he hands them a cassette and says, here's a little something for you to listen to on your way home. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a recording of them talking out there. Oh, that is badass. That, that is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's pretty <laughs> love that um <laughs> john but it's do you just have, so far for the course yeah it it seems like he just i mean michael just th that was his element he thrived there right and <laughs> everyone got to be in his little sphere do you have a, a particularly favorite song that you worked on it sounds like liberian girl was a pretty magical experience Yes, because of that. That one, and then I have this dream. I liked I have this dream, not because it was the greatest one that I'd ever worked on with him or anything like that, but because it represented, you know, a re reunion, in a sense, for us. And doing something that we could really do and giving to humanity and all of those things. So that was special for me as well. Oh boy, I, I can't wait for um. I, I just hope one day we we get to hear it. You know, <laughs> like when the time's right and when everything's worked out and you're comfortable with it. I hope one day the world gets to hear what you know what that song is. <clears throat> yeah, we, it's it's a bit encumbered right now to try to figure out what is really possible with it. But again, see, I'm of the belief that the way that you give back to people that have given so much to him and, you know, his family and the companies and all that is that you just make these things available. People want to be able to hear, you know, where someone was at different points of their life and all of that. So I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that could be heard, but that's one that's special. Yeah. When Michael was in Bahrain in the studio with you, what what were some of the things he was saying around the song? Like, how did he feel a sense of urgency about getting it out for the Katrina victims? Absolutely. And uh, there's there's a lot, like I said, that I can't really go into. Yeah. But for me, I just felt that. Being able to help people is a big, big thing. And I think with him coming back into the marketplace and starting at a place like that, which would, would have endeared him and many others to people who were really in need. I mean, you know, that was ideal. And I think that maybe people were looking at it like since he was no longer engaged as he had been at one point with companies and deals that maybe it wasn't going to be made so easy to do. Yeah. I don't know. It, but to, to not help people is just was horrible for me. Yeah. Really. 
I mean, we can look at what's going on with people in our country right now. And we're talking about people who are experiencing a level of devastation I can't even imagine. And I've lived through some earthquakes and stuff like that, but I can't imagine what they're having to deal with, when it will be corrected, what will happen, let alone the people that went through this last year in Houston and, and the Katrina people that are still suffering to this very day. Yeah, I, It's hard to take. You know, it's hard to take. A little birdie tells us that you were in attendance at a very famous event, uh, pretty much the only time, I think, um, that Michael Jackson and, and Prince were together on stage. Oh, my God. Where, I think it was, I can't remember what performance it was, but James Brown points out to the crowd and gets them both up on stage. Um, what do you remember oh, of that yeah. night? Tell, what did Michael think of it all? Yeah, that was a very special <laughs> event. I think you're the envy of everyone that you got to be there. <laughs> well, it was it was it was uh, very very interesting. James Brown called Michael up on the stage, and Michael just had an impact. It was just unbelievable. I mean, just it was a very strong impact. James Brown, though, good grief! I mean, you're talking about a phenom. And so Michael came up, and people kind of liked him, and he was singing you know, a slow version and then went up tempo and he's dancing and doing his thing. And then they invited Prince up on the stage and Prince just wasn't connecting with the audience like Michael had. He just wasn't. And so he was trying different things, trying his Prince hand clap on B2. That wasn't working. And he took a shirt off and he was trying to play guitar a bit. That wasn't quite connecting. And then he was dancing and he did the spin and leaned over on a Roman column <laughs> and it was a prop and fell off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> now there is more to this story, but I would not want to. It's something I would say privately, but I just can't say it in a public way. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But I'll tell yeah. you this, it was... Unbelievable after that. I'll just tell you that. Oh, it got crazier. Oh, my goodness. Oh, way crazier. It did. It did. Oh, I'm it so did. curious, John. Come on, spill the tea. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it because, um, you know, that's, I mean, we're doing a more formal thing, you know, like recording this stuff and everything. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really, I wouldn't do that. Just like I, there's things I'm not saying about Michael that I just wouldn't say. Yeah. Period. Yeah, but so, this one was special. So much, <laughs> I have so much respect for his legacy. So, <laughs> absolutely, though. Yeah, that's it. One of these days, person. <laughs> so, John, there's a question we really like to ask all of our guests, all of our special guests. You being especially special, um, and that question is: How should Michael be remembered? I think it's clearly on the list of small handful of some of the greatest performers that have ever lived, along with having a high measure of humanitarianism and contributing to humanity in so many ways. I think that's what's most important 
um, when it comes to remembering him. Because there's been so much negative and dark press surrounding things that just feel so unfair from my point of view, I'll just say. Most of the time by people that didn't know him, you've had all kinds of people that have made claims and turn around and said they were paid off and all of these kinds of things. These days we can hear so much about so many different people, it's unbelievable. But what you can't manufacture is the success and the connection that he's demonstrated all over the earth and his contributions, which outdistance pretty much any entertainer that's ever lived. Mm -hmm. Those, um, those are the things I think matter. I mean, to those who really knew him more intimately, there's just lots of other things that we'd like to see people remember, but that isn't what the public got to see. And I think what he gave the public was a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot. And it's deserving of respect. I'm hoping that at some point, either this estate or a future estate will make sure that those things are viewed in the proper light. He's done so much music in his life, there should never be a question of did he sing on something. Goodness. Right. That's it. That's that's ridiculous. Yeah, I, that that's what I think. You know, I think he's helped and benefited so many people. I mean, I'll just give you one simple example. Here in Los Angeles, we had a big venue for the major artists to perform in. It was called, you know, the Forum. And the Forum is where the Lakers basketball team played and they would have all kinds of other events there. And Michael wanted to perform there. That venue wanted to take 40% of the money that was made in merchandising and lots of other things that were viewed as unfair at that time from somebody like Michael, who they knew was going to sell out everything. He refused to do it. So he went to a smaller venue that was called the sports arena that is next door to the big Coliseum that had the, the Olympics in it several times here in LA and things like that. So this smaller venue required him to do more days. But just to give you an example of what that means, if you were going to the sports arena and you wanted to park, there is a, you know, a, a lower class, black community and Latino community that lives around that area. People would stack park cars on their front lawn, you know, and charge $10, $15 for parking. So let's say, you know, every night that he did that show, that family was able to get, you know, 10 cars up there. Maybe they make an extra 100 to $200 a day of, the, of those shows. That's how far-reaching a successful person's influence can go. You know, and for a working-class family like that, having four or five days of maybe an extra $500 to $1,000 coming into your household is a big deal, mm -hmm. considering there's hundreds of places like that around there. And, you know, the T-shirts and the different things, all of that. That's just an example of what he meant 
You know, people never forget that, that he did that. Instead of going to the other place. I miss him every day. Yeah, I bet you miss just laughing with him and joking. You know what I miss? I miss that, the feeling that you can work on a piece of music and there are no limits. Mm. I mean, he could decide he wanted to do something from South Africa and it would get out all over the world. He could want to do something with some Chinese people. It would get out. I mean, there's, it's, I just miss that. There's not a lot of artists who are that open to exploring and participating and giving. I just, I miss that. Yeah. Well, the work you guys created together certainly will live on forever. And us as fans, we can pop that CD on and appreciate it forever, which is awesome. And that's one of the main things <clears throat> he wanted, I guess, was to immortalize himself and his art. And uh, we're the lucky ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What an answer. Yeah, most fantastic. And we couldn't agree more with all the points you made, John. Thank you so much. There is a time when we should heed a certain cause. Cause the world, it seems, is right in this line. Cause there's a chance we're taking in needing our own lives. It seems we need nothing at all. I used to feel that I should give away my heart. And it shows that we are needing Then I read the headlines and it said they're dying there.
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. And thanks for listening to the MJ cast. To look at what you're doing these days, do you have any passion projects or events um, that you're involved in that we should know about and can tell to our listeners about? I'm working on a uh, piece of music that is for the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth. Oh, wow. Wow. And <clears throat> it's a collaboration with Shaka Khan and Sonu Ningam from India. It's definitely um, a labor because she's doing everything she can do to sing it in Gujarati, their language, which has been an unbelievable challenge for her. But that's what we're doing. And um, that'll be our contribution to his um, 150th anniversary. Wow. Can't wait to hear what comes of that one. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it'll be interesting. I hope that, um, you know, that you're able to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And if if fans and and, uh, of Michael Jackson and listeners of our show want to connect with you, John, where's the best place they can do that? Do you have a Twitter or Facebook? I have a Facebook. I am on Twitter. I don't use Twitter a whole lot, but but I do use Facebook a lot. And um, that would probably be the place that I would be most likely, you know, found. Yeah. If they, if there was one or desire for a response, you know? Yeah. No worries. We'll link that in the show notes. It's facebook.com slash, and I don't know how to say the word, J-A-N... Johnny Babu. Johnny Babu. Yes. That's an Indian name that means like a venerable, mature person. Very cool. It was given to me. Yeah, that one survived. I... <laughs> Let's see here. And on Twitter, it's at Johnny Babu. Awesome. We will link that. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Now, how do these podcasts get distributed or made available? Well, they are on, they're everywhere. They're on Apple Podcasts, which is probably our main platform, Um, iTunes. And uh, we're on YouTube where we put it out all over the place. Um, But we usually... Yeah, you- I, I, I look forward to being able to hear what it comes out like. Oh, I can't wait. I'm actually yeah, going to we- edit this while I'm over in China. Oh, that's nice. Well, I hope you have a great time in China. <laughs> Thank you. And John, we'll be promoting it a lot on um, Facebook and just everywhere that you will definitely see. So um, it will be oh uh, very clear how it's how you can access it and listen to it as well. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Well, John, thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to thank you both Uh for your time and for um, reaching out. I know there's a whole community of people who are just going to love hearing these stories so much. Um, And again, like we started with, this is about getting the real the real legacy out there, and you are such an integral part of that. um, That it's truly an honor. So, um, so much. 
Yeah, so that wraps up our show. Um, this has been just fantastic. We really hope that listeners, that you guys enjoy this. We can't wait to hear your feedback. Um, I know you're going to be getting a lot of friend requests, Sean, on Facebook. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Jamin, do you want to mention our social media accounts real quick? Sure, of course. If you want to subscribe to um, our social media, we are The MJ Cast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, you can find us there. We, if you want to email us, you can get us at themjcast at iCloud.com. You can subscribe to our show all over the place. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, on the Android googly things that you know more about, Elise. <laughs> and um, we are on... Public. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're on YouTube as well. And thank you so much, John. And thank you so much to listeners for tuning in to the MJ Cast. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with another episode and uh, keep Michaeling. Be bad. Elise, could you say a few words? I'm really excited to have John on the show and get to talk about some of his great stories. Awesome. And John, could you say a couple little words for the test? Yes, you'd be safe over there in Australia with all of those, <laughs> um, you know, uh, geographical challenges that exist, you know, <laughs> from the animal kingdom. <laughs> I may just have to keep this test. That's great. Uh, <laughs> all right, now. <laughs> um, I'll Can just I ask get... you one other question first? Of course, of course. Is it really true that people or water skiing behind boats with crocodiles on the sides of the inlets. Uh, yeah, that's that's a thing. So, see, oh, that's ridiculous. Crocodiles, <laughs> they're, they're, if you go out to regional Australia, especially nor- northern Australia, crocs are pretty common. So there was a story about a month back where a bunch of um, Vietnamese fishing people that were fishing out on boats, they weren't meant to be, but they were fishing in these river systems in rural Australia. And um, something happened. The police found out they were there or something. So they all ju- jumped off the boat and ran off into the into the forest. And most of them were caught, but two still haven't been found, and we're pretty sure they've been eaten by crocs. Oh, oh my God. So this is... And those things are fast. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but... This, <laughs> it's real. People talk about us crazy Australian animals. It's a real thing here. Like, I can't tell you how many kangaroos I've hit in my car. Like, big taller than my car came. Are you seriously? Yeah, it is crazy. It's not so much in the cities, of course, but if you drive anywhere out into the country, it's a real danger. They just jump out right in front of the car. You go on 100 Ks an hour and bam, you know, it's, I've wrecked two cars because of it. It's terrifying. You, you need a custom license plate that says marsupial. <laughs> <laughs> marsupial killer. Marsupial yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Ha <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Jcast.